Amen. Our scripture reading today in Hebrews, the fifth chapter. Hear now God's word. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, of those by reason, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you would bless us now. Open our eyes and our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews and the discussion of the priesthood and the role of Melchizedek in particular are critical to our understanding of who Christ is and how he saves his people. If the book of Hebrews were left out, we'd have a major problem because Christ is not of, of, of the lineage of Aaron and so would, would not be qualified to be a priest, but in Hebrews, we learn that he was of a different order, of a different priesthood. Now, the Bible is full of arguments. In fact, you could argue that the Bible is one long argument. An argument is, a, is something wherein we present the reasons for something. We make the case for something. And so the Bible is full of arguments, which means we have to be trained and we have to learn to listen to and follow arguments. In other words, this is not light reading. Sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes it takes hard work to follow the argument, to understand it, to make the connections. And so, when you hear the arguments in the Bible, we've got to make some kind of a decision. We, we have a tendency, for some, it's easy to tune in, to get interested, to become engaged, to say, I want to understand this. And for others, there's kind of an automatic tuning out. This is hard, this is difficult, uh, and so I begin to let my mind drift and I don't follow what's going on. Now, So Paul begins to give us in this text an introduction 
to the nature of Christ's priesthood and his intercession for us. And as he begins to explain this critical doctrine, he realizes that much of his audience uh, is not ready to follow his argument. And so he seems to have the frustration a bit that I hear from many pastors concerning the spiritual immaturity of those he is trying to instruct. And I said, Paul, I'm not going to take the time to make my defense of why I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but I'll be saying that throughout. We can have that conversation some other time. So Paul diverts his discussion to the address, to address this peripheral, uh, or excuse me, this perpetual problem in the church, and uh, he rebukes them for their dullness, for their lack of progress, just as a parent might rebuke a child who is not living up to their potential. No wonder the apostle ended up having many people who complained about him, but he presses forward, he does his job, calling upon them to be better than they are, to do better than they're doing. And so we're going to follow his lead this morning and this in this text, and we are going to start with a discussion of the high priest, and then we're going to follow his detour. Now we're told that up to, up to this point in the book of Hebrews, as we get to chapter 5, we've already been shown in the first four chapters that Christ is a sympathetic high priest. The necessity uh, that he be this, be this way may be gathered from the fact that he's a priest at all. And isn't it wonderful that Christ has compassion on those, as the text says, who are ignorant and going astray? Have you ever been ignorant? Have you ever been going astray? Christ still has compassion on us. He doesn't just cast us aside and say, I have no interest in interceding for you because you've gone astray or because you don't know what you're talking about. He still has compassion upon us. And so the sympath- this sympathetic representation is a part of the job description of being the priest. The first four verses of this chapter show that compassion and intercession come with, comes with the priesthood. But the earthly Aaronic priest offered sacrifices not only for the sins of the people, they had a problem, and that is that they too were sinful. And so the sacrifices that they offered also were offerings they made for themselves and for their sins. And in this respect, Christ is not like the, the priest of the line of Aaron. Christ as a priest was a true priest, but he was much greater than the priest of the Mosaic Covenant. Nevertheless, this did not make him unsympathetic. It didn't make him less of a priest. In fact, quite the opposite. The work of the high priest involves, according to Hebrews 2, things pertaining to God. Thus, only God can rightly select a priest, particularly the high priest, even as God called Aaron. And just as the priest of Aaron didn't assign the honor of priesthood to themselves, so Christ did not appoint himself uh, to become our priest. In Psalm 2, which is now quoted in this passage, uh, God's statement that he had begotten Christ is quoted in this place and applied to the priestly work of Christ. You have that? Psalm 2, today I have begotten thee. 
is being quoted here in Hebrews chapter 5. And remember, the New Testament is an inspired commentary on the Old Testament. So when we read in the New Testament quotes from the Old, we ought to pay attention because now we're getting the Holy Spirit telling us the deeper, fuller meaning of what was originally given to us in the Old Testament. So in this case, in chapter 2, this begetting of his son uh, specifically has reference to him calling him to be a priest. And, and therefore, he must offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And so uh, the appointment came from God himself. This quotation of the second psalm uh, should be set alongside the quotation of it in Acts chapter 13, where the same verse is applied to the resurrection. And when we put the two together, we can see that the resurrection, that in the resurrection, Christ was entering into the higher level of his priestly office, passing from the one who was the actual sacrifice into the priest who offers up that same lamb in the holiest of places in the, at the throne of God. So you know the image in the tabernacle. So what we have in Jesus, in the, in the tabernacle, we had what? We had the tabernacle itself. We had the sacrifice itself, the, the, the lamb that was sacrificed, or the bull, and then the priest who entered into the Holy of Holies to present that sacrifice to God. Jesus is all of that. Jesus, remember, all of those things were shadows pointing to Christ. Now Christ has come. He is our tabernacle. He is the Lamb of God. He is the high priest who enters before God into the Holy of Holies to present himself, the perfect sacrifice to God. And by the way, uh, just an aside here, because we are also priests in Christ, we are also temples of the Holy Spirit, tabernacles, if you will. We also are living sacrifices, and we also are priests. And, and so Christ does all of that. So we see this repeated over and over through Scripture. So the passage from Psalm 2 is talking about Christ being begotten from the dead, and as an ever-living priest, he enters into the priesthood of Melchizedek, who is without beginning of days or end of days. And by the way, if we didn't have Hebrews telling us all this, we wouldn't know any of this about Melchizedek. He's only mentioned twice in the, in the Old Testament, almost in passing. And so there's this unveiling, and we're going to see it's critical to our understanding of the gospel. The Aaronic priesthood offered sacrifices, first for themselves, secondly for the people. Their sacrifices of them, uh, for themselves were for sin, and Christ prayed for himself first as well, but he didn't have to do this because of sin. Nevertheless, he still fit the pattern of a priest. Christ entered into his perfection. An interesting way of thinking about this. Not because of a previous condition of imperfection, but from a condition of probationary or untested perfection. In other words, until Christ goes all the way to the cross and sacrifices himself, demonstrating his full obedience even unto death. So in that sense, there is this maturing, reaching his ultimate purpose in Christ himself. And now he's achieved that. And so thus it says that he learned obedience through his sufferings, and it says that he having been perfected or matured, having reached 
the goal. Why did he come? Christ Jesus came to save sinners. So now he's done that. And so he became the author of our salvation. The word author comes from atio, meaning literally the cause of our salvation. Later we will see how Christ is the cause of our salvation when we read in Hebrews 7, 24 through 27. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests, the Aaronic priest, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So, Again, Jesus and his priesthood is superior to all the priests of the Old Testament. That's the argument being made here. But now uh, note that he is the cause of salvation for all those who obey him. There's a lot in this text. And again, I'm just running through this because I want to illustrate something here to get to the last part of this text. So those who have obeyed the truth, he says, have purified their souls. uh, 1 Peter 1.22 says, since you have... Purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently from a pure heart. And so we ask this question uh, regarding obedience. Um, is obedience necessary for salvation? Well, I want you to consider these verses. Jesus says he will bring vengeance on those who have not obeyed the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. To give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. 1 Peter 4, 17-18, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Paul sought to bring about the obedience to the faith among all the nations. Romans 1, 5, Through him we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Romans 16, 25-26, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret uh, since the world began, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic, prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandments of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. But not all had obeyed the gospel. Romans 10:16, but they had not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed our report?" And yet he was grateful for those who had Romans 6, 6, but God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin, yet you obeyed from the heart. Those who have obeyed the truth 
have purified their souls. If obedience is necessary for salvation, then are we saved by works? Now, again, I want you to bear with me because I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate is there's parts of the Bible that just take us having to focus and think about these things to dig deeper, to see the glory and the beauty of what God has done, the depth of what he's done, how long he's been doing it, all of this leading up to this climax, this apex, this glorious revealing of Jesus Christ and what he has done and what he is doing for us. And so this question, again, of obedience is addressed. It's a common discussion among Reformed people. If obedience is necessary for salvation, are we saved by works? Not if by works, you mean meritorious works, works by which we earn salvation? No. But if you mean by works, the works of God, works by which we receive God's unmerited gift of salvation, which God has obtained, then yes. Believing in Christ is a work of God. John 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Since repentance and baptism are likewise required by God, they too would be works of God that we must obey in order to receive salvation. Then Peter said to them in Acts 2.38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he commanded them, Acts 10.48, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay for a few days. Thus salvation, by grace, through faith, does not preclude the necessity of obedience to Christ and his gospel. So, we ran through that. It's a short passage, but again, I was wanting to set the table. There's a lot there. We could back up, start breaking this apart, looking at a lot more in the Old Testament. There's a lot to study in the first part of Hebrews 5. So Paul is presenting this, and then he pauses and he realizes that there's a, you know, uh, he's writing, of course, but he has some sense that there may be a glazing over at this point. He's, heard, he's gotten some reports back about those he's writing to. And so he realizes many who were reading his argument regarding the priesthood of Christ were not able to comprehend what he was saying. And so now he's going to take this detour, and this is the focus of what I want to leave you with today. It'll be brief and to the point, but it has to do with Christian maturity about where we're going and how we get there. The goal and direction of Christian living is maturity. Just because you've been a Christian for many years does not mean you are mature. Um, they, may like the, uh, they may be like the person who had been a teacher for 25 years, and when they heard about a job opening that would mean a promotion, uh, this teacher applied for the position. However, Someone who had only been teaching for a year ended up receiving the job, and so the, this person who had applied uh, went and asked the principal why, and the principal responded, I'm sorry, but you haven't had 25 years of experience as you claim. You've only had one year of experience 25 times. During the whole time, the teacher had not improved, had not grown. 
So it may be with many Christians that they haven't grown, but they've simply repeated the first year of spiritual life many times over. The lack of spiritual growth, that is spiritual immaturity, is a dangerous thing. And you neglect it. You neglect your spiritual maturity at great peril to you and your family and your future family as things flow downstream. For there may be blessings to be enjoyed in Christ that only the mature Christian can truly understand and appropriate. If one remains spiritually immature, they don't come to fully appreciate their standing and their blessings that they have in Christ. You, it's like having somebody give you a bank account and you have, no, how mu- you have no idea how much is in there. They give you a checkbook and say, I opened an account in your name and I made a deposit. And you're happy about that. And maybe you write a few small checks, but you have no idea what's in the account. You have no way to draw on that. You have no way to, to take advantage of that because you're in ignorance. Deprived of a greater understanding, they're more susceptible to the temptations of the devil. They don't have all the resources they need to make it through life, to make decisions and to resolve conflicts, to build relationships, to have a strong marriage, to raise solid children, to be great employers or employees, to, to accomplish great things in life. It's like, it's like having a toolbox with no tools in it are dull tools, as we'll see. And so Paul uh, uh, turns now and he says, "The, the longing for the way it was when we were first converted really can be a subtle snare, but if we aren't referring to our first love, uh, which would be good, you know, we should long to have that first early passion, but too often it means that we long for the days before everything was so complicated And we are too often doctrinal infants. So Paul finds him faced with this problem in the book of Hebrews. And so he has a lot to say, he says, about Christ as a high priest. But the spiritual immaturity of his readers made it difficult. And so he thought it necessary to temporarily digress, to have a detour here. And so he begins by rebuking his readers for being dull when they should be sharp. He rebukes them for not being able to teach. Verse 12, he, he rebukes them for, not, uh, for needing to be taught the basics. He rebukes them for needing milk and not solid food. Those in this condition are babies, and he says, unskilled in the word of righteousness. And so this prevented him from continuing with his argument at, the, at this moment. And so while the material that he had to share was hard to explain, he says, it wasn't so much the difficulty of the material itself as it was their inability to receive it. They had become dull of hearing, and that may imply a regression. The Greek word here for dull is nothros. And I always think that reminds me, it sounds like no thrust, which really gets to the heart of what it means. There is no spiritual get up and go. It's a yawn. It's I'm bored. When will this be over? This is hard. This isn't exciting. You know, if we could tell some jokes and, and some stories and things that would entertain, that's, and, I, and there's a time and a place for those things. But there's also a time and a place for the hard work that it takes. Anybody ever, you know, 
Anybody ever learn math without some tears? You know, some tears sometimes are involved in hard work and getting it done. Um, And so, uh, they had no spiritual get up and go, dull of hearing. They may have been like the Bereans at one time, who we read in Acts 17.11, were were, uh, received the word with all readiness of heart. But somewhere along the way, that enthusiasm for the word of God faded. And so, um, when a person becomes dull of hearing, uh, apathy sets in, and they begin to regress to a state of immaturity. There are many substitutes or covers for spiritual maturity. Material success. I'm a successful businessman. Look at our home. Look at our family. We've got all everybody spit shine. They have on pretty clothes and they look great. And we all know how to sit in our pew and look respectable. And by the way, those are all good things to do. I'm not criticizing those at all. But if that's all it is, if, that's, if it's just a show, and that behind the scenes, behind the curtain, there's not also some real earnest growth and maturing going on, that can be a cover. And so, um, even the Sadducees, for example, who by all accounts knew their Bibles, right? They could quote chapter and verse. And so, what does Jesus say to them? You are mistaken not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. So, it's not even enough to be able to quote the Bible. You've got to know the Bible. You got, it's got to be part of you. It's got to be a word that's abiding in you. And so... Of course, a diet of milk is often necessary. Certainly, it's needed for those who are babes in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Similar kind of rebuke here. Or Peter, though, who, not a rebuke, actually says, Now, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Unfortunately, for those who have regressed, as with the Hebrews, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Such a diet includes what is described as the first principles of the oracles of God. I think of it this way. You know what? By now, you ought to be studying math and science and geometry, but instead, we got to start over with the ABCs and your flashcards. I remember teaching school, and, and some young people in junior high level were really struggling in math. And I realized that some of them had never really learned their multiplication tables. So we kind of pulled them out of class each day and spent about 15 minutes with them each day just with flashcards. And lo and behold, their math grades started to go up. They didn't get that basic thing. And, and because of that, they couldn't grow. They couldn't build. They, had, they didn't have a foundation to build on. Do you know the books of the Bible? Do you know the content of the Bible? Have you ever memorized Scripture? What do you have? What, what is your base? What is in there? What do you know about your faith? You've got to know something in order to know other things. You, you, learning and growth is a process. And so 
wherever you are, you've got to have an honest assessment of that. And then you have to, maybe you do have to back up. Maybe you do need to spend some time with the flashcards. Maybe you do need to memorize the books of the Bible. Maybe you need some sword drills. I don't know. But whatever you need, you need to get that there in order to be able to do more. Don't study if you understand. Study until you understand. That is the standard. And so, um, what's important here, too, is this is not just so that you can be smart and knowledgeable of the Bible and do well at Bible trivia and impress other people with what you know. That's not the point at all. Um, And so, for example, Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, later he's going to say this. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, maturity, remember? Perfection, maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. He says, here are some of the elementary things that everybody should already know. Uh, The foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says, you should at least know all those things already. In contrast to this, those who partake of solid food, he says, are of full age, that is, mature. Uh, Those who by reason of use, back to Hebrews 5 here, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The word translated exercised is the word, that, the Greek word where we get our word gymnasium. Those who have worked out in the word of God are the only ones who can discern, who know the difference between good and evil. What does that harken back to? The garden, right? So... Are we going to listen to the Word of God? Are we going to let God's Word determine what's good and evil for us? What about all the current events and issues in our world? Who's going, to, who's, going to have the, who's going to have the last say about marriage, about children, about abortion, about sexuality, about all kinds of things? Is it God's Word? Is His Word true? Or is it your opinions? Is it what you feel and what you think? Are you going to determine good and evil? Well, everybody knows the difference between good and evil, right? No. That's not right. How do you know it's not right? Because the Word of God tells us it's not right. And so if you've been worked out in the Word of God, you know that. And you know that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof is death. You know that there are people who call evil good and good evil, who have it completely backwards. How do we know? Because we've worked out in the Word of God, and we know God is true, though every man is a liar. So maturity comes from us having our thoughts replaced with God's thoughts. Remember, His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways not our ways, as far apart as the heavens are from the earth. So now somehow, now that I'm a follower of Christ, now that I'm a disciple of Christ, I've got to flush out all those bad notions, those ideas that are false, those doctrines that toss me to and fro, and I need to replace it with something that's everlasting. What's what's everlasting? God himself and what? God's word. 
It abides for how long? Forever. The living Word of God abides forever. The Scriptures, which are God-breathed and infallible and are profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction, are able to make you perfect, complete, equipped for every good work. It gives you everything you need. Now, notice then um, that we should take care of what Paul means by maturity. Mature believers would be able to discuss the priesthood of the Lord. Those who are unskilled have to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God over again. These principles are identified, uh, again, a few verses later at at the first part of chapter 6. And we already mentioned those, uh, doctrines of repentance and baptism and so forth. These are defined as the milk. The priestly intercessory work of Christ as our high priest is identified as the meat. Notice that certain ethical distinctions require maturity, experience, and long practice in order to be able to make them. Ethical distinctions of a certain kind are not equally obvious to everyone. So all men know that it's wrong to kill your grandmother for her money. But what does it take to see the sins of worldliness, of flattery, of the subtle sins? Legalism arises when Christian communities try to have the fruit of discernment, that is the ability to make fine distinctions without having the maturity that's necessary. And I think it's a real problem in our circle sometimes. We have these very wooden kind of interpretations. Well, the Bible says the borrower is a slave to the lender. And so we quote a verse, and that's a true verse. I like to say all the verses are mine. I don't have some yours and some mine. They're all mine. They're all yours. We have to deal with all the Bible. But is that all the Bible says about debt? Is that all the Bible says about lending or borrowing? Because your job and my job is to read all the verses and to put them together and to have wisdom to know what that means and doesn't mean. I'm just throwing that out as a future conversation point. But there are a lot of them like that. Wisdom is not simple. Wisdom involves nuance. And I can't just pick two or three verses and say I'm going to follow those if in the process I'm violating six others. How long have you been a Christian? Do these admonitions apply to you? What is your condition of maturity? Is it comparable? Uh, Is is it where it should be? Do you know someone, uh, do you need someone to go over the basics with you again? Or are you diligently applying the basics and hungry for more? Furthermore, if you're hungry for more, is the moral component at the center of it? Do you study the priesthood of Christ, for example, in order to discern both good and evil? Or are you functioning on some kind of a doctrinal computer? I just want to be able to spit back data, impress people with how much I know. In Scripture, doctrine is practical, and high doctrine is highly practical. Those who disparage doctrine for the sake of practice are impractical. And those who disparage practice for the sake of doctrine are unskilled in the word of righteousness. We are never to pull apart what God has joined together. 
Now, wrap this up. I want you to fill in the blank. I have the spiritual mind of a blank year old. Got that? Fill in, fill in your own blank. I have the spiritual mind of a six-year-old, 15-year-old, 40-year-old. I should have, this is the second blank, I should have the spiritual mind of a blank year old. Now we're going to pass out cards, let you put your name on there and pass those in. And I'm going to read them from up here. Now if we were honest with ourselves, many of us would be embarrassed to publish that assessment. And we probably should be ashamed. But the real question before us today is, and this is, I speak to you as a pastor, and and while I don't know all of you individually, as I look at this congregation, it looks very much like my congregation. And I care for you. I want to see you grow. Paul wanted to see the Hebrews grow. He didn't know all of them personally, but he loved the church. He desired to see maturity and growth, and that's what I desire for you. I've known your church from the beginning. We've prayed for you many times, and we're going to continue to do that, and even better now that I have seen you and been here. But the real question before us all is, is this a sorrow that will lead to repentance? Are you ready to turn around? Wherever you are, however old you are, however long you've been doing this, I want to urge you to a fresh start. We don't have to wait, wait till New Year's Eve to make resolutions. We ought to be doing that every Sunday. We're about to come to the Lord's table and do what? Renew covenant. I mentioned yesterday, this is the first day of the week, not the last day. This is not the weekend. This is the week beginning. And the reason we gather here as the people of God, as the family of God, to start our week is to remind us of who we are and why we're here and who he is and what he's done And that should matter when we walk out these doors to go live the rest of this week. That's why, and we'll come back and do it again next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, our whole lives, until we get it right. And so there ought to be, we're marching to Zion together. We're helping one another, we're praying for one another, we're loving one another, we're serving one another all to the end of Christian maturity, to Christ-likeness, till we all come to the unity of the faith in Jesus Christ. And so are we prepared to make the necessary changes to bring about greater spiritual maturity, or are we locked into perpetual immaturity? Even the Apostle Paul understood that this was an ongoing uh, process. The Apostle Paul when he was an apostle, when he was doing this work, when he was writing these kinds of letters, here's what he said about himself. 1 Corinthians 14. Not that I, the apostle Paul, have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. In fact, this reminds me, when Paul is in prison, in 2 Timothy, it's his last letter, and he writes to Timothy. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. 
basically down in the bottom of a big pit. And when he writes to Timothy, he says, by the way, would you bring my cloak, because I suspect he was cold, and would you bring the parchments? Now, Paul was at the end of his life, and he still wanted to study. He wasn't finished yet. He wanted to get in a few more lessons in the Word of God before he left this world. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, this attitude, this perspective, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. And so Paul admonishes the Corinthians as I admonish you this morning. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. But in understanding... Be mature. Let's pray. O Lord, like the Old Testament priests, let us first confess our own sins and repent of them. May we set an example before your people and before the world by holiness of life and imitate, uh, and imitate our walk uh, with you and to be like you. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us. And know our thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Father, forgive us for our lack of maturity and enthusiasm for knowing you and your word. The knowledge described in this text, O Lord, is not just intellectual knowledge, but wisdom put into practice. And too many of us are very unskilled in the word of righteousness. And our faculties are not well trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. We end up doing ourselves harm and our family harm and others harm because we haven't done our homework. Give us spiritual wisdom to govern our own life and to counsel others. Give us dissatisfaction with our present level of knowledge and wisdom and the hunger for true wisdom and maturity. We ask that our congregation, this congregation, might know, uh, might grow uh, to be one which feeds on solid food, not milk, that we might be a people skilled in putting into practice the word of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.